If one word could be used to describe events in Ireland in 1920, that word would probably be fire. The second year of the War of Independence began with the IRA burning police barracks and income tax offices around the country, an effective weapon hitting at the heart of the British administration in Ireland. But with the arrival of the Black and Tans, and later the Auxiliaries, they too used fire as a weapon, with deadly effect. Towns and villages across Ireland were to suffer reprisals for IRA attacks, the most devastating of which happened on the night of the 11th of December with the burning of Cork City. About half past seven or so that night, I was sitting down to tea with the rest of the family, and suddenly we were all brought to our feet by the sound of a grenade exploding somewhere outside, followed soon afterwards by two further explosions. Then, after a silence, there was shouting and shots, revolvers and rifle shots being fired outside. I ran upstairs to the bedroom window, and by the light of the gas lamp across the way and a public house, I saw a scattered body of auxiliaries racing down the road, shouting and shooting for all they were worth. This went on for quite a while until somebody took charge of them and got them into some sort of order and started a house-to-house search. The voice there from the RTE Radio archives of an unnamed civilian who witnessed this event describing how the night began in the 1960 RTE Radio documentary on the burning of Cork. Now, this act was not simply a knee-jerk reaction to an IRA ambush, as we will hear. Cork City had been in the sights of the Crown Forces for some time. Joining me this evening to talk a little bit more about this momentous and terrifying event is historian and author Michael Lenehan. Michael, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you very much. Now, that night was the culmination, in a sense, of a series of events that began way back in March of 1920. Describe to us what had been happening in Cork in the months leading up to the burning of the city in December. Well, I suppose the main events would have been the Republican Lord Mayors. We had three Republican Lord Mayors. The first one was Thomas McCorton, and he was murdered in March 1920 in front of his wife and children in Blackpool. The second major event would have been Terence McSweeney, who died in hunger strike in Bristol. And then we had a third uh, Republican Lord Mayor after that, and that was Donald O'Callaghan, and he spent his time on the run. This was the kind of the lead-up, like, you had a Republican Cork, and you had all these things happening at the time, and up to that point, there had been very little burning. But with the retaliation from the IRA burning RIC barracks, it started with the burning of Sinn Féin clubs in the city itself by the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries. Fire was being used as a weapon of war. What about businesses? Were businesses being burnt? How were businesses, because there was a war going on anyway, how were they coping on a daily basis? They were, they were kind of getting on with it because they had to, otherwise they'd have been closed. Uh, but we, if people came into town, we say into Patrick Street, they would invariably have been stopped by the uh, Black and Tans or the Auxiliaries. And the first thing that they do was search people. And when they search people, invariably uh, money was stolen, jewellery was stolen from people, watches were taken, people were intimidated. So that was a major problem for businesses in the city centre at the time. We also have reports of... In, at, at later stages in the campaign of sniping going on from buildings in the city 
uh, sniping at the black and tans. There's reports of grenades being thrown down streets as well and people being killed, IRM in particular. So it wasn't the inviting place that you would expect it to be. We see that as well from some images that we see. I mean, if you see an image there of Cork in 1920 looking at Patrick's Bridge, you can very well see uh, armoured cars going over Patrick's Bridge. And that, that was not the norm in, in many cities, certainly not in Britain. Now, obviously, November 1920 was a crucial month in the War of Independence. You had Bloody Sunday in Dublin. And a week or so after that, there was the Kilmichael ambush in which uh, 17 auxiliaries were killed by Tom Barry's brigade. What's the significance of Kilmichael for the burning of Cork, which didn't actually come for a couple of weeks after that? I suppose the significance of Kilmichael initially was the fact that the auxiliaries were considered an invincible force. They were officers, they were armed to the teeth, they were very highly trained. These were not drunken loads as some people have kind of made them out to be. Uh, The number that were killed is insignificant when we look at the total uh, military presence in Ireland at the time. But what was important was it was the first time they were taken on and they were wiped out totally at Kilmichael. And that must have a major significance for Cork. The escalation then of burning in the city, it kind of went a bit stratospheric, really. Was there a feeling in Cork that a big reprisal was coming, not just piecemeal burnings of premises? If we look at the dateline of the fires and the way, you can see the escalation. And it started initially with Sinn Féin clubs, GA clubs. But after Kilmichael, the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union hall at Camden Quay was totally destroyed. Uh, the firemen went to out to fire and they were fired upon. They tried a second time and they were fired at again. This is the first time that we see a deliberate attempt on a building outside uh, an actual Republican building and firemen are fired on to prevent the fires being put out and both buildings either side were also destroyed. That just gives you some indication. Premises as well on Patrick Street were also attacked. Uh, One in particular, we know the reason, that was the Blackthorn House. But there was two other ones, and that was the American Shoe Company in Cahills. And they were also set in fire. That was probably because they were either side of that building, you know. And what was the actual trigger that led to the burning of Cork? Was it the ambush at Dillon's Cross, the IRA ambush at Dillon's Cross? Definitely, that was the catalyst. But if it hadn't been Dylan's Cross looking at the history of what was happening and the build-up to it, anything could have really happened. But the fact that the auxiliaries were attacked by the uh, volunteers in the very same manner, that's what's important as well. They used the very same tactics as Tom Barry had done. One of them had stepped out onto the road in the trench coat. The lorries had slowed down because they were nearing a corner. There was rifle fire from the wall. Bombs were thrown into the back of the trucks. One auxiliary was killed, uh, Spencer Chapman, and 12 others were very badly uh, wounded. So um, they must have felt their position was quite weak, like when this could actually happen to them. And this was only a couple of hundred yards from Victoria Barracks, the, the military barracks in the city. And the area around Dillon's Cross, I think, was the first to suffer, wasn't it? They were the first to suffer. There's some terrible reports like, about how they treated people. They pulled people out of their houses. Some people tried to get out their furniture and they were prevented. There was one instance where one man had turkey uh, chickens and the chickens were actually killed and thrown into a bonfire. Uh, several houses in the area were burned and this was the start of the, uh, this, this orgy of destruction.
And what happened then with the Delaney brothers, uh, who were members of a local Republican family? Yeah, they were a Republican family, but they had no hand, act or part in the actual ambush itself. But unfortunately, there's a few theories about what happened there. It's believed that possibly ammunition had been buried in, the, in, in their farm and one of the ambushers apparently had let, dropped a hat and bloodhounds were used and that led them to the Delaney farm in Dublin Hill. The two brothers were actually in bed. There was a knock on the door. The auxies were left in and uh, they were looking for Jeremiah and Cornelius. They went upstairs and basically shot the two of them in, the, in their beds. So what was it then that prompted the auxiliaries to exact revenge, not just in the area around, around uh, Dillon's Cross or around the barracks, but to turn their attention then to the city of Cork? What happened? Where did the fire start? Why did they start? Well, it's something that's very hard to kind of fathom because a lot of the premises that were actually destroyed were loyalists. Because we see pictures of Cork City and a lot of people say Cork was a loyalist city. But certain sections of Patrick Street would have had Union Jacks uh, flying from their premises. Grants, Alexander Grants, for instance, a large department store, certainly wouldn't have been a, a Republican shop. The next shop to be set in fire would have been Cash's, uh, followed quickly by Munster Arcade. These were the main department stores in the city at the time and they had no tie certainly to any republican movement it looks as well as if like as the night went on certainly there was um there was more and more drink consumed by the auxiliaries and things were getting more and more out of control and there was looting taking place who was doing the looting was it the auxiliaries or um was it local people no, it was, it, there was very few local people. The thing is, if, if local people were out at that hour, this was during the curfew, because before the fire started, uh, at nine o'clock in the city, people were uh, made go into their buildings because shots were fired to clear the streets. So something it was inevitably going to happen. Uh, and it, it happened then with the firing of the buildings on Patrick Street. Now, you're talking about people being indoors because of curfew. And that was also a huge problem because a number of people lived above the shop, as it were. They're, they lived above the businesses when the fires started. How did they How did they get out? How was it that nobody died, nobody was killed? It's an absolute miracle that nobody was killed on the night apart from the Delaney Brothers in the city itself. Because above all these department stores, you had a lot of apprentices living overhead. We certainly have instances where, where between 15 and 20 people were living overhead. And again, this is one of the reasons we have such good uh, witness testimony. There was a Mrs Gaffney in particular in Munster Arcade. She gave a first-hand account of how she heard the hoarding being pulled from the, the front of the building and the smashing of glass. That was something that was uh, common to all the buildings that were entered at the time. And they were lucky to escape with their lives. They shouted out from the top, can we come down? And the auxiliary said, we're not sure about the men, but uh, you can come down. And when they did come down and went to the corner of Cook Street, they, they were fired at. So because the whole thing had got out of control to that extent and that people were fired upon, it's just a pure miracle that nobody was actually killed. Now, obviously, the fire brigade came to do their job. The firemen did their best to do their job, but they weren't allowed to, were they? Oh, certainly not. Uh, the greatest success that the fire brigade had in the initial fires was Grant's department store. They couldn't save the store, but what they did actually do was they, they used their... 
appliances, their hoses and the water to prevent the fire spreading to the English market because that market is made totally of timber and if it went up, the, the whole thing would have been gone right down into the Grand Parade itself. And later on then, when they did tackle the fires in Cash's and the Monster Arcade, their hoses were driven over to prevent the water going through. The hoses were bayoneted and it got worse when the firemen were fired upon. And some of the firemen were wounded. One was wounded in the nose, another was wounded in the hand. And they were taken to the Norton Infirmary Hospital with their injuries. As we'll hear now, we're going to hear now from a fireman who was present at the time, just what it was like to be there and the dangers they faced, not just from the fires, but also from the Crown forces, as Michael described. Well, when we got into Patrick Street, we were useless. They were cutting the hoses and they were firing all around them. There was one man, he was going up on top of Cassius on the ladder. He was ordered down by a black and tan with a bomb in his hand. They were either firing at him previous to that. He was told either to get this or get down. And that meant that that fire went on. It was worse than if a fellow was outside in Flanders or on any other battlefield. And in this clip from the RTE archives, a post office worker describes the devastation he witnessed on Patrick Street. I was on duty uh, the night of the fire in the GPO. I came off duty about 11 o'clock, walked up Winthrop Street and came onto Patrick Street which was covered in uh, water flowing everywhere and uh, firemen rushing all over the place with hoses to try and stop the fire. The fire was raging then. There were a few scattered people about. That was Aldo. But black and tans everywhere and they're racing about and they're looting the shops. Well, they were darting in and out of houses about and uh, as far as I saw, they were ripping the hoses because water was flowing everywhere about. And the firemen was doing the best they could against all kinds of odds. Michael, from those descriptions, we do get a sense of the level of destruction. What was the reaction from Captain Myers when he arrived with his firemen from Dublin? Well, he actually couldn't believe because there, there was a special train sent from Dublin with the latest fire engine, actually, because the, the firemen faced an almost impossible task. But what he said is that he came through a sea of darkness and he came out in a sea of flame. And he didn't believe at that stage, that was Monday the 13th, that the city could be saved. So the fires were still blazing at that stage. And he also states that Cork was worse if you compare O'Connell Street and Abbey Street and the adjoining streets in 1916. So we have a direct comparison with the destruction of 1916 in Dublin and that gives a good indication to people of the amount of damage that was done. And City Hall, which had so long been in the sights of the Crown forces, finally succumbed to their efforts that night. In this clip, we're going to hear from a gas man describing what he witnessed. I went down Merchant Street and by the light of the fire, of course there was no other light to see, so as I was going down Merchant Street I happened to go down halfway and I met one of my comrades. So see where you're going, so I said I'm going down to the City Hall, so see there's no City Hall there, so it's burning down. So we had a bit of a chat and he was telling me his experience about he was held up by the one of the tens and told to hop it as quick as he could. And So we came back the same way and curiosity I could see just in front of me down Parrick Street, a few firemen in the, with their hoses in the, hose in the fire, so they might as well be <laughs> throwing water into the, into the lee. Michael, how long did the city actually burn for? 
But I suppose it was a long time before they got the fires under control. The first thing that actually had to be done was the gas had to be turned off. Because if the gas had been left on, the whole city could literally have been, could have blown up. Uh, the extent of the damage was so great that it was five acres of property. There's different estimates as regards the unemployed. The low estimate is about 2,000, but it's as high as 6,000. And the compensation claims kind of vary from 3 to 6 million, which is, is probably two or 300 million today. So that just gives you some idea. Now, there were efforts to find out or to question who was responsible for the burnings. What were the findings of the inquiries into the burning of Cork City? Well, the inquiry was carried out by the military, so it was going to be skewed totally to one side. But the one thing the military wanted to do was to exonerate themselves of any blame, because the army uh, directly, they they certainly weren't responsible, and... um, they wanted to, to find out, but they didn't in the finish. When the report came out, it, it just wasn't published. This was the Strickland report, and it lays the blame squarely on the RIC, the Black and Tans, and the Auxiliaries at the time. What's interesting about that report is um, Lloyd George and Churchill prevented it from being published at the time because it was a total embarrassment uh, for the British that a city under their control uh, would catch fire and their own forces were responsible for doing it. It was 1998 that that report was released in queue to National Archive, but nobody knew of its existence. On a related note, the Roman Catholic Bishop of Cork at the time, Daniel Cahillan, did not exactly cover himself in glory. What was his response to the burning of the city? It's interesting because as far as back to 14th of March... He denounced the volunteers from the pulpit and immediately after the fire, he put the, the blame squarely on the Dillon's Cross ambush, which caused widespread resent, resentment and the, the corporation criticised it, openly saying that whilst the people of Cork suffered, not a single word of protest was uttered by the bishop after the city had been decimated. So they said he had added insult to injury at the time. And this excommunication was to have a kind of a grave impact on the volunteers' morale because these were very um, religious men. And there was another thing happened and that was the um, Christmas Eve. The printing press of the examiner offices in Patrick Street were destroyed because they had printed the decree of excommunication. And how did people then subsequently in, in the years afterwards, how did they react to Bishop Cahillan? Well, there was a kind of a counterbalance to Bishop Colin, and you were the likes of the Capuchins, we say Father Dominic, Father Albert, people like that, who had supported the 1916 Rising, and they had said to uh, members of the IRA that they were fighting for their country and that they would be totally exonerated and that the decree of excommunication wouldn't concern them. So that was a kind of a counterbalance uh, to the efforts of the bishop. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there, Michael. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us about that extraordinary night uh, in Cork, the burning of the city of Cork, which took place 100 years ago this week. Cork Burning is the name of the book by my guest, Michael Lenehan, about this pivotal event in the War of Independence, and it's published by Mercier Press. Michael, many thanks for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on.